Well, this morning I invite you to turn, if you have a copy of God's Word, to 2 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our study of this amazing and powerful little letter by the lead apostle of Jesus, Peter. We come this morning to verses 10, really the second half of verse 10, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Actually, I'm going to read just for context into chapter 3, verse 2. But I want to warn you, if you're here this morning uh, for the first time and you haven't read Second Peter for a while, be prepared. Uh, there's some rough language here. This is just tough stuff. And um, the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author of these words, holds nothing back in describing false teachers. And this is what Peter is describing up in chapter 2, verse 1. He calls them false prophets, false teachers. You can think of them as false pastor teachers. And we're learning what God thinks of these characters. So let's begin in reading in the second half of verse 10. Speaking of these false teachers, Peter writes, Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water, and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring you up stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Amen. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Let's pray that we would understand it rightly. Let's pause. Our Father, we are so encouraged by the songs we have sung this morning, recounting the promises of Scripture, that your grace is so sufficient, all sufficient, for any and all sinners who would come to you. That in Christ we are safe, 
safe from the justice and the judgment that we deserve. And yet, as your, we trust humble children this morning, when we hear words like those we've read now, just now, we are, we are a bit frightened, disturbed. And we would ask that in these next moments that your own spirit who authored ultimately these words would instruct us and deeply impress upon the hearts of your people your holy intentions for this portion of your holy word. Help our hearts and minds to be receptive to this holy commandment. For Jesus' honor we pray. Amen. I confess to you, I didn't want to preach on this text this morning. Is that okay? I really didn't want to. Uh, the last two Sunday mornings, we have been in First, Second uh, Peter, chapter two. I had hoped originally to cover a lot of ground, but it's my duty, my responsibility to to try to read and then explain to you a, a portion of the Bible in a sufficient manner that I have been able to explain it and exhort you with it. This, as I have said, is, is strong language. It's what one commentator refers to as Peter's rhetorical fury. I've been shocked by it. Even though I've read Second Peter, I don't know how many times, as we together are slowing down and paying attention in our public worship to this portion of God's word. It's really shocking. This is Peter and the apostle of Christ and a slave of Christ as he introduces them in chapter 1, verse 1. And this isn't young, immature Peter. This isn't Peter who wants to fly off the handle and just open his mouth carelessly. This is, this is old Peter. This is seasoned Peter. This is Peter softened by the grace and the love of his Lord. This is Peter who loves his Lord and loves the sheep of his Lord. This is Peter who's about to die. He knows a martyr's death. And this is Peter carried along by the Holy Spirit writing in the most strong language possible to denounce any man or woman who would have the audacity and daring to, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, teach his people, Christ's people, falsely and lead them astray. It is shocking. And if you're not shocked by it, I don't mean to be unkind. You're not reading it. If we had a leader or a pastor today who would write a letter with using such terminology, we would immediately, in our day anyways, think that that man's lacking grace. We would probably suggest that that man needs some, some counseling in conflict resolution. He needs to learn how to tone it down a little bit not use such vitriolic language, not to go to such extent, to not judge in such a condemning, damning manner as Peter does. And yet, Peter is writing not merely his own heart, his own words. This is his heart and his mind, yes, but this is the Holy Spirit. He's told us full of the Spirit, up in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit is introduced by the Lord Jesus to the apostles as the paraclete, the one who comes alongside as a helper, We most often think of the Holy Spirit as our comforter, and rightly so. He is God's 
greatest gift to us apart from in now as we live on this earth apart from the scriptures that we have the indwelling of the spirit is is the indwelling of God the Father and Christ the Son with us in fellowship so we rightly think of the spirit often in comforting terms but does your doctrine of the holy spirit include the reality that the holy spirit views false teachers in this way and speaks of them in this way? Does your view of God the Father, does your view of God the Son and the Spirit entertain that he thinks and speaks of false teachers in these kinds of terms? For a vast number of evangelical Christians in our day, That's not even possible. Somehow they have a doctrine of God, interestingly, passed on to them by false teachers that has left out the clear teaching of Scripture that while God is loving and there is no one more loving than him, God is kind and God is merciful, abounding in grace towards sinners. That God loathes evil and abhors anyone who in pride and arrogance would dare in his name using his word mislead men and women away from the truth. Peter is stirring up the disciples to whom he's writing He's writing to Christians. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. It's the second letter he's writing. We love the letter known as 1 Peter. And he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind. Peter, the, the apostle and the pastors, writing to men and women, Christians scattered around the Roman Empire that he has met in many places, many different churches he's thinking of, where he has met humble, earnest, sincere believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to stir them up. He's doing a pretty good job. He is writing these words, not to merely vent, He's not just releasing steam. He's writing with all of his redeemed mind and passion to not only inform these sincere believers, but by God's grace, before he dies and goes to be in the presence of the Lord, to somehow pound deep into the heart and soul of these sincere believers an abhorrence with all that is contrary to God's word. To to put some steel in their background that when they witness a false teacher or someone, no matter how nice, no matter how kind, no matter how seemingly jovial or harmless, when they see anyone departing from the Holy Scriptures, that these believers would have some steel in their spine to stand up, to walk out and to leave and not follow these false pastor teachers. But as I have said in previous Sundays, it is, it is tragic that in our day, and particularly, I will say, in our area here in New England, that by and large, believers in Jesus, and I mean sincere believers, have been so lied to that they seem to believe that to have an attitude like the Spirit does or Peter does in 2 Peter would somehow be to be lacking grace. Wow. 
And so I don't know why God in his providence had me preach on 2 Peter at this time. I'm fully aware there are some of you living your lives right now with things going on and you're here this morning, you're thinking, I'm not really sure I need to hear this morning another message on false teachers. But apparently we do. And as I said at the beginning, I don't want to preach on this text. It, it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts passing through me. What I mean is it's, it's, it's so intense. It's so painful. It's, it's hot with the fire of heaven and you get close to it and you get singed a little bit. This text has a little bit of the smoke and fire of hell on it. It's uncomfortable. It's disturbing. But dear brothers and sisters in Christ, this is when our true view of Scripture is revealed. I said I didn't want to preach on it, but you know what? That's irrelevant. Absolutely irrelevant. Yes, God uses the hearts of pastors, and it is completely appropriate for a pastor to preach and teach on a particular portion of God's Word based on something he He believes the congregation needs at that time. But generally speaking, week by week, it's not my job somehow in the middle of the week, Tuesday or Wednesday, to to in in the reaches of my own heart, what do I feel Christ's sheep need? I'm like Peter, right? I'm a slave. I'm a slave. I, I, I you've heard the saying, but a true preacher didn't write the mail, he just delivers it. That's my duty. I answer to heaven. So here we are in 2 Peter, and the Spirit would have us again consider these false teachers. We've looked at the danger of false teachers the first week. Last week, we looked at the damning of false teachers. It's strong language. But that's what Peter talks about. This morning, I've entitled this message, The Denouncing of False Teachers. Peter denounces these false teachers in the strongest language possible. And I don't know how else to go about this than as I did last Sunday, just to kind of work our way down through the text. I I want to just look at the characteristics or the denouncements of these false teachers, and we'll see how far we get. I I hope to, to get through this passage this morning, not because I just want to be done with it, because it is, it's heavy. It's heavy. So let's look together at what the Spirit has for us. First, I want you to notice in verse 10, second half of verse 10, we're looking at the characteristics of these false teachers. False pastor teachers are arrogant, are arrogant. They are daring and self-willed. And in our culture, daring and self-willed is praiseworthy. And certainly in the Bible, there are occasions where there is courage. Peter's not saying these men are courageous. They are arrogant. Their daring here is not commendable. These men have no fear of God. They are, in the words of Psalm 36, men who, for whom there is no fear of God before their eyes. They are so impressed with their own personality, with their own likability, their own persuasiveness, their own following, their own social media likes, that honestly, God is God. He's off somewhere, but there's no fear of God. And not only is there no fear of God, Peter points out that they have no fear of angels, even demons. They are arrogant. They are self-willed. That is not, again, a commendation. And, and I will say as an aside, as a Christian man or a Christian woman, are you self-willed or are you Christ-willed? Big difference. In other words, are you doing what you do because you think that is what you should do and that's the end of it? Or is what you do driven by, I am owned by my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm bought with a price. Lord, what do you want me to do? A true teacher is, self-teacher is, a true teacher, Christ's pastor, is not self-willed. So these false teachers are arrogant. They're 
daring and courage, if you want to call it that, is applied to nothing higher than the pursuit of their own will. What they want to do for their own selfish, carnal desires for their ministry. They think so little about the biblical revelation about God and about holy angels and fallen angels that they they think it's not a big deal to somehow pretend that they have the authority to condemn, even revile demons, false angels. Peter points out, verse 11, verse, sorry, second half of verse 10 and 11, they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring reviling judgment against them. The idea here is, is, these false teachers claim to have a power over evil forces, the powers that be. Angels are real. I, I believe absolutely, in accordance with God's word, that we likely have angels who are observing our worship here this morning. I'm not like looking around. It's just, it's just a fact of the Bible. In Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he notes that We are actually to conduct ourselves in our worship in some ways so that we don't offend the holy angels. So it's okay if you, on a Sunday morning, need to elbow somebody, hey, make sure we worship well because the holy angels who are in the presence of God are watching and we don't want to offend them. (laughs) Angels are real and they are not cute, chubby little cherubs dangling from your Christmas tree. They are awesome and powerful beings, so much so that the Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, towards the end, even John, who is mature and old at that point and has seen the Lord Jesus, when he sees an angel, the angel is so glorious, so beautiful, so majestic that John falls down before it to worship, mistakenly thinking that the angel is Christ. These are awesome creatures. And these fools, these false teachers, and we see some of this in the some corners of the Pentecostal and charismatic movement, generally evangelicalism, that get their kicks out of wowing crowds somehow by their ability to somehow cast out demons and, and, and unilaterally express authority over them, to revile them, to speak of them in demeaning ways. As Peter says, even the most powerful holy angels don't even dare to bring a charge or say something Um, in a demeaning way about these demonic fallen angels even in the presence of God they leave that to God there's only one person who can handle angels his name is Jesus and we'll leave that to him we pray I've never spoken to a demon in my life that I'm aware of I never intend to command I have no power over them I just keep my eyes on my Heavenly Father and on my Lord Jesus Christ and let my Father and my Lord and Savior King take care of them because they're too, too much for me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little puny little man. So these false teachers claim to have a great authority. Maybe even common today, we're going to have to move more quickly than this, I know. I'm taking a lot of time on this first point. But maybe more common today among evangelical pastors is just a dismissing of spiritual forces. They dismiss this power and authority of God, and they dismiss the power and, and, and reality of angels. Secondly, pastor te- false pastor teachers are ignorant in verse 12. They're ignorant. They're like unreasoning animals. They are like creatures of instinct. They're, they have no knowledge, verse 12. They're ignorant of the scriptures and the realities of which the scriptures teach. They may sing about or refer to great and glorious things in the Bible. They use the terminology about Jesus, about God, the love of God, all those terms. They, these false teachers have to use some biblical phrases, otherwise they would never gain a hearing in the professed Christian church. But in reality, they don't know the source. They're borrowing what they learn from others. Theirs is a cursory reading of scripture. They really don't care about studying the text in depth. They leave the original languages to somebody else. By the way, as an aside, 
just our pastor teachers should be trained in Hebrew and Greek. It's a little aside there. And uh, I say that because early on, out of uh, my first year of college, I had a seminary, I had a a very kind uh, man who was in ministry tell me, oh, Gabe, you don't need to study Hebrew and Greek. I mean, you know, I mean, just leave that to the scholars. Your average pastor, you're not going to be using it. (laughs) Now, all these years later, I think, it's my job. It's to be in the text and to go to, as best I can, to the closest original text and teach the people. Yes, there are faithful pastor ministers who have not studied Hebrew and Greek. Be very clear. Don't hold that out as a qualification. But I'm just saying the tendency of our day, less theological training, less training in the biblical languages, has to do with a departure from the scriptures. Not good. These false teachers are dumb. And I don't mean that as... um, I'm not trying to be silly or cute. They literally are dumb to the things of God. They don't know what they're talking about. They talk about the glory of God. They talk about maybe, they may even refer to the holiness of God. They're ignorant of that of which they speak. Not surprisingly, their messages are dumbed down. Listen to their teaching and you'll find that they work to make snippets, little clips of biblical truth taken out of this, plopped on an outline, They make the little snippet of scripture to fit their self-originated message rather than making their sermon or their message fit the word of God. And so year after year, people go to church thinking they're hearing biblical preaching when what they're hearing has as much depth and seriousness and truth as the greeting card aisle at your local grocery store or pharmacy. I go to that greeting aisle, I pick up cards, but that's not where I go for my theology. These false teachers scoff at deep, exalting, God-exalting, Christ-centered, orthodox theology. They're not really interested in theology much, except unless it's new theology by some new teacher who is undermining the old ways, the old truths, the doctrine once for all delivered to the saints. This is especially popular right now through the reach and influence of of one author in particular, N.T. Wright, and I mentioned his name a few weeks ago. I realized nobody has no idea, nobody has any idea what I'm talking about. He's a pastor, theologian, British. It's been, he's writes writes, 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 writes. And you have a whole generation of younger evangelical pastors who, if you talk to them, they're rather enamored with N.T. Wright. And you say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is that N.T. Wright and some of others around him are, are, archi- are the architects of a whole re-engineering of the gospel so that the gospel is no longer as I said last Sunday morning 1 Corinthians 15 1 through 3 that Christ died for our sins to save us from judgment and hell no that's they they literally scoff at that mock that they call those who believe in the gospel primarily of of being saved from hell by the death of Christ on the cross, they call you a soteriologist. That's the Greek word, soteri, uh, the, the soteriology, soterion. They, they make fun of you. If, if you're still someone who thinks that we need to send people out, evangelists and missionaries, to go tell people headed for hell that there's only one way they can be saved and it's by repenting of their unbelief and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can be saved from the judgment to come according to N.T. Wright and to others. And of course, he would never say it as bluntly as I am. But it's very clear, oh no, that's, that's very ignorant of you. You really haven't read the Apostle Paul right. It's more about just the kingdom and of course we believe in the kingdom of Christ, but they use terms and it's just kind of about the program of what God's doing with the cosmos. And if you want to come along for the journey, which you hear that word a lot, I'm not saying every time you use journey you're a heretic, but 
you're hearing a lot about journey and your personal experience and you just kind of get on the bus. And so those who are tracking with N.T. Wright and others, Scott McKnight, these other modern purveyors of a false gospel, you don't hear much about sin anymore. You don't hear much about repentance and you don't hear much about being saved from hell. Thirdly, we need to move quickly because it's starting to feel a little warm in here for multiple reasons, I know. False pastor teachers, thirdly, are headed for an destruction, an ignominious destruction. You can look up later that word to find out how to spell it. But what I mean is, is, is Peter says that these ignorant pastor teachers false teachers. They're, they're like unreasoning animals, verse 12. They're like born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, and their destruction of, in the destruction of those creatures. So animals right now will die in the destruction of the heavens and earth before the new earth and new heaven. All the creatures are going to die. And Paul, Peter says that these false teachers are going to have as glorious a death as a squirrel roadkill. You remember a few summers ago, uh, was it, where everywhere you went, I mean, literally, 93 was littered with squirrels, flattened. It was the plague of the squirrels. Look it up. It was true. It was, I mean, everywhere you went, like every 10 feet, there was squash squirrels. And these men and women, false teachers, yes, they are going to be judged, and we'll see it'll be a severe judgment. But how often as you think of, have you thought about say, the last week about that squash squirrel you saw a few years ago. You haven't. It's just another squash squirrel. And Peter's point is these men seem impressive. They have vast followings. They are <clears throat> engaging. They are, <clears throat> they are seemingly powerful and influential. And Peter says they're like beasts, and their end, they're going to have as much glory as a beast. Fourthly, they're shameless, verse 12. They revel in the daytime. Even in Roman culture, it was understood that partying and debauchery and drunkenness should take place in the dark. That's when most sinners do their sin. It's because, even it's interesting, there's still this, this sense of shame. Shouldn't do this in broad, open daylight. Of course, in our culture, we're seeing uh, it doesn't matter anymore. But these false teachers, pastors... They don't care. They're just shameless. They, they'll do what they do anytime. They have no shame. Fifth, they are unseemly in the eyes of God. What I mean by that is I'm referring to that phrase in verse 13. They are spots and blemishes, stains and blemishes. This is not in the context of, oh, you know, my shirt. This is in the context of Old Testament, what is pleasing and acceptable to God. And you would not bring to God an a blemished animal. You would not worship God with a robe that is all stained with last night's food. These men are not only stained before God, they're like the stain and the blemish. And what do you do with a stain or blemish? You just wash it out or you throw out the garment. I don't know how to say it more plainly. God doesn't like them. I mean, some of, it, some of us don't even have theology that God doesn't like some people. God is loving, but no, he is not like everybody. He does not like these false teachers. He actually, as we'll see, is disgusted with them. They are like a spot or blemish and of no use, and he will do away with them. They are liars. Verse 13 they revel in their deceptions. Earlier, Peter had mentioned their false words that they speak. They lie, and they're, they're cunning about it. They're deceitful. So many evangelical Christians who are sincere, they love the Lord, they're, they're sitting in churches where they know that something's off. They know something's off. They're not hearing much about 
well, the Bible in its fullness, they don't hear often about the holiness and the glory of God. They don't hear, hear often about sin and the need to repent. They don't hear often about the bloody cross work of Christ to atone for sinners. They don't hear much about pleading with sinners to be saved from hell. Oh no, that's, that's uh, something to be turned away from. So they, they, they're not hearing that, but they think, well, you know, my pastor is, is uh, he's a nice guy. He, I, he, he's got to love Jesus. Uh, he, he seems so, so kind and, and he comes alongside and he helps us and and, and it just seems that a whole generation of evangelicals aren't tuned into what God has said. If a man is not coming to you with the full counsel of the whole word of God, put your fingers in your ears and walk out the door. Oh, I'm not sure I can do that. That's not very gracious. Whatever your view of grace is, If your view of grace has you staying under the teaching of someone that the Lord of grace has condemned, it's not gracious. If you're not standing or sitting under the ministry of where the, in grace, what you call grace, if you are where the Lord of grace is not found, it's not grace. If you think you're being kind, if you are sitting or ministering or staying where the Lord of loving kindness is not found, there's nothing kind about that. False teachers are liars, and as effective liars, they, they, their messages are full of biblical references. They use enough biblical language to feed, fool the sheep. It's so obvious, though. I mean, if you're going home after church and you're saying, now, now let's see, let's think. Now, was there somewhere where the pastor was biblical? I, oh, you know what? At that one point, I, he read that verse. Okay. <laughs> and, of course, I'm subject to this as well, so I better get back to the text. But do you see what I'm doing this morning? I'm not putting it forward as as the model of biblical preaching by any means. But I'm telling you, I have the burden. What I have to do is if I don't stay close to this word, read it to you, tell it to you, I'm in trouble. A lot of trouble. I don't want to be in trouble. And so false teachers are liars. Seventh, they are lustful. Peter says their eyes are full of adultery. In other words... In their self-will, in their self-consumption, they have no fear of God and their view of grace, their false gospel, because they are covered with grace and God doesn't really care about any pursuit of holiness. Basically, their eyes become windows of lust. And men, women become... meat to them. And I've already referenced it, but we see far too much in pastoral ministry a permission of pornography as somehow a guy's just got to work on that. These, these men and women, in some cases, these men most often, they come off as holy, they come off as Righteous, but in private, they're looking at pornography likely. And so as they interact with people, when they look at men and women, they just look with eyes of lust. That's what Peter's saying. They just, they're just full of lust. They have eyes, verse 14, full of adultery. In other words, they can't look at other beings except as sexual treats for their own immoral desires. How much have we seen this in the Roman Catholic Church? How much have we seen this in Protestant churches? Full of lust. Number eight, they are closely related to this, verse 14. They are enticing 
predators. They are predators. Of course, they don't come across. They don't seem like predators. But they entice unstable souls. They know someone's weak. And they lie to them. They move them with telling stories. They win their trust. Not through a line-by-line teaching and explaining of Scripture, not by living out a holy life in front of them over time. They win trust by deceit, and they abuse. I just, I, I'm just stirred in my heart again. There's so many churches where we know things have happened, and we know that sometimes with all the best efforts, things can happen that you don't want to happen. But I just want to make clear that if anybody ever harms somebody else in this church sexually, immorally, you will be removed from this church. And we will not cover over, we will not hide. Can you be forgiven? Oh, yes, of course there's grace for sexual sinners. We know tragically uh, there's, there are those who, are, uh, those who have abused children who are converted. Can they be forgiven? Absolutely. Can they know the grace of God? Absolutely. But I just want to make clear that if there is, an, and if there is anyone who would think that they could come into this church and that we would be in the name of kindness and love not directly deal with it, you are sorely mistaken. I trust there's no one here that needs to hear that, but we, why? Why do we have that kind of stance? Because that is the stance of the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not touch his little ones. There's no place for predators in the church of Christ. The church ought to be the safest place on earth for little children. That's one of my desires from the outset of coming to this church is that this church would just be a place where children of all ages are know they are loved, know they are safe, they are cherished, their moms and dads are affirmed in their role. And I believe by God's grace he's given us that. Hard, I know, to consider. But there it is in the text. These sexual predators who entice unstable souls. And if you saw the passion and zeal in me, just remember in my role, I've met with some of those. And some of you maybe are those who have been abused. And you wonder, where's God? And here's a text that tells you your God is not indifferent to those kinds of sins. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, God is the avenger. God is the avenger. They are enticing predators. We're going to have to move very quickly, and I think you're probably okay with that. You, you You get the idea. These are greedy, false teachers. Verse 14, their hearts are trained in greed. They view everyone and everything as either contributing to their own self-will or standing in the way of it. This is why these kinds of pastors, if some of you experience this, as long as you're along with, going along with their, uh, their plan, their self-oriented vision for the church, they think you're the greatest thing. But as soon as you aren't with the plan, you find that they don't even give you the time of day. They don't love you. They just want to use you. They are greedy. They use people. Tenth, they are accursed children. Verse 14, accursed. This is probably the strongest denunciation in a list of denunciations. Accursed. They are not children of God. And this should answer the question that some of you may be having. What's this language later in the chapter about having once known the way of righteousness and some may be thinking well are they believers were they christians and and now they're going to leaving what's no no these are not believers there is no child there is no sinner born again by the holy spirit who becomes a child of god 
who is described as an accursed child. These false teachers are not true believers. They are around the truth. They are around the things of God. They even maybe speak the gospel and the things of God, but they have never been born again, and they know it. They're false. They're deceitful. They're corrupt. They're shams. They are accursed children. I didn't say it. The Holy Spirit did. Accursed children. Wow. They are pagan prophets. They may bear the name of Christ, but they're like Balaam, the son of Beor. Balaam, you have to read Numbers chapter 22 to 24, that incredible story of a pagan king wanting to call Balaam a pagan prophet to curse God's people coming out of uh, the land of Egypt and coming into the promised land. And you maybe know the story. If you don't, you need to read that this afternoon. It's a riveting passage. And God won't let Balaam, God won't let Balaam curse the people of Israel. And Balaam doesn't know it, but he's on a donkey going to meet the king that's paying him off. And he doesn't know it, but the angel of the Lord, perhaps an pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, is in the middle of the road with a flaming sword about to chop him down. And so the donkey that Balaam is riding on pins him against the wall, and Balaam just keeps beating the donkey, beating the donkey. He's all all upset because the donkey won't go and finally the donkey just goes right down and Balaam just keeps whipping it and finally God opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey speaks some sense into Balaam and then God opens Balaam's eyes and he sees the angel and sees that this dumb donkey saved that dumb man from dying. And Peter here is saying These supposedly Christian pastor teachers, they're like Balaam. They're false pagan prophets. They're just in it for the money. That's all that Balaam was in for. Twelfth, they are empty promises, these false teachers. They they always promise a lot but deliver very little. They're like mist. You know, the mist this morning was just beautiful uh, up where we live not far from here and you see the mist coming along and you could see the dew heavy on the grass and, you know, actually benefiting. But these guys, these guys don't benefit anybody. They promise much but deliver nothing. They are reserved for hell, Peter says. They are reserved for black darkness. Wow. God has already... Because of their sin and their corruption and abuse of his people, God has already made a specific reservation for these false teachers by name in hell. That is not a list you want your name on. They are sensual and worldly, verse 18. They entice by fleshly desires. Sometimes it's very overt and just out there. Sometimes it's just, it's more subtle in that they just, they, they appeal to people who attend their churches. They appeal to the most base and common interests and desires. You really don't learn much about God or about Christ. They are slaves of corruption. They are men who are bound not to Christ, but bound to their own lusts. They are under the most severe judgment. In verse 20, Peter says it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it. What's he getting at? It would have been better if they had just never even heard the gospel, better if they'd never even had the Bible. In other words, the judgment that is coming upon them is more severe. It would have been better if they had never, ever even heard of Jesus. They are under the most severe judgment. And finally, verses 21 and 22, they are disgusting. I mean, what do you think of a dog eating its own vomit and a sow washing in the mud? The image here is one of disgusting. They are disgusting to God. Think that's unkind. It's 
It's in the text. That's God's view of these false teachers. They may seem put together. They may seem nice. And again, they may seem influential and harmless. They may seem impressive. To God, they're gross. And in closing, there are two two views or two realities that God is impressing upon the hearts of his people. On the one, on the negative, do you see that God is wanting, by his word, to instill within you his view of these false teachers. So whereas you maybe thought, "Ah, it's not that bad that you line up with God's view of these false teachers. That's the negative side. The positive, Peter says in chapter 3, verse 2, he's stirring you up that you should remember the words spoken by the prophets. He, God wants you to be revulsed, revolted at false teaching. And the Spirit wants us, all of us, to go back to the Bible, the Scriptures, with new vigor, with new attention, with new loyalty, with new intensity, tenacity, to not stray. Doesn't matter if people like it or not. We hold to the book because it is God's holy word. And if, God forbid, any man ever comes to this church, and if it be me or another pastor, and leads you astray from this word of God, you see that man as God sees him. And I've said this many times, but church, I hope it never happens, but you may have to have the nerve to remove that man. You guard the truth at all costs. You hold to the scriptures out of love to God, love to the Lord Jesus, and compassion upon the untold souls out there who don't know their right hand from their left and need to know the true gospel. That there's a God who's holy that we are sinners, and that the only way we can be saved from the just judgment to come and from hell is by trusting in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who died on the cross, taking in himself the judgment for our sins, that we believe in Jesus, yes, as our Lord and Savior. They need to know that. And they'll only know as we hold fast to the word of God. Let's pray. Oh, God, clearly you're trying to get a hold of our attention. And so help us to run to your word. Where we've maybe been negligent, we pray that you would stir us up. We pray that where our Bible reading has maybe fallen off, that we'll pick up the book again. We pray, Lord, that you'll guard us and keep us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.